Did the Purim story really end 70 years ago? Were the Nazis the modern-day extension of Amalek? And did Hitler really have chicken feet? I'm Avi Cohen. I'm Mati Cohen. And this is Jewish Thought Flow. Hi, and welcome to a brand new edition of Jewish Thought Flow. This is your host, Avi Cohen. In honor of the upcoming Yom of Purim, we decided we wanted to speak about Purim, especially because this week's Shabbos is Shabbos Sacher, and obviously everybody knows the mitzvah on Shabbos Sacher is to remember the eradication of Amalek. So we actually decided to do this podcast uh, last night at around 10.15, and I stayed up till about 1.30 in the morning doing research on this. And the topic we decided to do was the connection between Amalek and the modern-day Amalek that you, you may have heard uh, referenced, which is the Nazis. And where exactly does that come from? Are the Nazis really the modern-day Amalek? And are there more connections between the Nazis and Purim? You probably have heard of the Nuremberg trials and a certain connection there, but in the research that we did, we found many, many more connections. And it's a really fascinating story, and we're really happy and excited to be presenting it to you today. So a lot of us like to think of Amalek, uh, Haman, as things of the past, uh, aspects of the Gentile world that no longer bother the Jewish world. We're not facing extermination uh, right now. However, 70 years ago, during the Holocaust, the Jews faced extermination. And not only that, but every 50 to 100 years prior to that, there was events that threatened the existence of the Jewish people, either the existence of a Jewish people in a particular town or in a country, uh, going back throughout our history. So why was this? Didn't we stop Amalek? Didn't we stop Haman? Where is this continuation? So actually, in truth, you can't eradicate Haman, you can't eradicate Amalek until Yemais Mashiach. Amalek is a function or a aspect of the Gullus that you just cannot get rid of. In fact, this idea is spoken up by the Ben Yayada uh, on Yuma uh, he writes that Haman was never fully eradicated, and actually through the mitzvahs of Purim every year, we eradicate a little more. So think about it, every year we have a certain remnant of a Amalek, a certain remnant of Haman in our world. As we know, Haman was was the, the archetype of a Amalek. Um, and through the mitzvahs of Purim every year, we eradicate a little bit, so that next year has a little less Haman. But you're still going to have a Haman. Now, this Haman could take the form of uh, Iran. It could take the form of Nazi Germany. It could take the form, as we're going to see, uh, the pogroms of Tachvatat, the years 1648 and 1649, when, when th- uh, tens of thousands of Jews were murdered by Cossacks. So now what's very fascinating about this is that the Megillah actually, in ways, hints to the future uh, destructions or events, horrible yeah. events in our history. So, for example, in the Shud Shevet Akasi, he points out that the Tav in the word Vaktechtav Esther and the Ches in the words Chor Karpas Utcheles, which are two psukim in the Megillah, are both written larger than any other letter in those psukim. They're, they're written big. And he says this is hinting to Tav Ches, which is Tach, as in the year Tach, the year 1648, right? The year Tach, which is 408, which would be 5408 in the Jewish calendar, is corresponds to the year 1648, which was the year of these pogroms. Now, these pogroms were particularly devastating to the Jewish people, and, and if you mention the years Tach Vatat uh, to basically any Jew, they'll know what you're talking about, but just in case you don't, it was a series of pogroms that were carried out by the, the Russians, the Cossacks, the Swedes. Basically, there was uh, during a war going on, and everybody's just like, this is a good time to kill some Jews, and uh, 
tens of thousands of Jews were killed, um, had to flee, were sold into slavery, were forced conversions. It was a, a terrible period in Jewish history. Now, the Chassam Seifer writes that not only is this hinted in the Megillah, but he says everything that happens in the world is hinted to in the Torah. And this is in Tyrus Maisha in Parshas Tetzava. And the Chassam Seifer brings down a Pasuk in Bereshish, the Kites Vidardar Tatzmiach. So the Medrash refers to Haman as a kites, as a thorn, as a thorn to Bnei Israel, and actually says that Haman was hanged on a kites, on a thorn tree, some sort of thorny tree, representing this idea. Now, the Pasuk, the kites v'dardar tatzmiach, the word dardar hints to the fact that the gzeira of Haman, to destroy the Yidden, was pushed off dardar, meaning dar ladar, from generation to generation, to this uh year, Tachvatat, of, of 1948. Now, in case you're saying, oh, Dar, 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 not, not that great. The gematria of Dar, Dar, Dalad, Reish, Dalad, Reish, so Reish is 200, and Dalad is 4, so 204 and 204 is 408, or Tav, Ches, which is Tach, 408. And this is from Chassam Seifer. So these are all connections or hints in the Torah, in the Megillah, regarding the continuation of Amalek, the continuation of Haman, way past the Purim story. But the largest and perhaps the most famous connection is between Amalek, Haman, and Germany. So there's a Messira from the Gra, tradition from the Gra, that Germany is Amalek. And that tradition was so strong that Rabbi Yosef Chaim Zunfeld refused to meet Caesar Wilhelm, the German Caesar, when he came to visit Eretzschel. And when he was asked why, he said because of this tradition that he had from the Gra, that Germany is Amalek, and obviously one wouldn't want to go meet Amalek face to face. So now, where does this come from? Where, where is the Gra uh, possibly getting this from? So it's known that Amalek is a descendant of Asaph, and the Gemara in Megillah on Vav and Aleph, all the way at the bottom, going on to Vav and Beis, brings down a tradition from Rav Yitzchak, where he, on a pasuk, Al Titen Hashem Ave Russia Zmame Al that don't give Hashem should not give um, the Russia his tivas, his desires, and he shouldn't remove his muzzle. So he says this refers to Yaakov, who begged Hashem not to give Ace of Harasha the desires of his heart. And don't remove his muzzle. The Gemara says, Zu Garmamya shall Edom. This is Garmamya of Edom. Shall Malahin Yaitin, that if they would go out, Machrivin Kala Elam they would destroy the whole world. Now, Garmamya, Germany, they kind of sound similar. Uh, it's a little bit more. The Yaivitz actually changes the word Garmamya to uh, Germania. Now, this is Biakov Emden. He lived far before, you know, the German uh, German Empire as we knew it. Uh, in World War One and World War II, uh, so his correction to turn it into Germany wasn't to fit some nice shot. It was because he authentically, you know, understood that Germania referenced Germany, right? Which also makes sense because in the Yakut Shemani, when it when it quotes the descendants of uh, Asav, uh one of them it lists as Germania instead of Germania, and the Gra and the Gemara Yuma, which also mentions Germania, the Gra also changes it there to Germania. Plus, there is no place Germany, <laughs> right? Now, so in terms of the not removing the muzzle, so the Gemara said that if if, uh, if they would leave, they would destroy the whole world, meaning if their muzzle was taken off. So what is what is that referring to? So the Gemara says that Germany had 300 crowns, and there was 365 um, uh, in, in Rome and Italy, there's 365 basically princes. And every day they would go out and fight each other, and because they were fighting each other, because they weren't unified, they weren't able to... Uh, focus on the rest of the world, and they weren't able to go out and destroy. And this was the the muzzle of Germany was that 
Shem made their political situation one where they were focused on internal fighting and therefore they weren't able to uh, turn their their uh, eyes of conquest on the rest of the world. Now, specifically, the Gemara mentions that their their unification with Italy or their lack of unification with Italy is what caused their lack to be able to fight the world. And this was what Yaakov was begging Hashem, don't let them unite with Italy, uh, which is fascinating for anybody who knows uh, just a little bit of 20th century history. Now, let me just read you a quote from, this is from history.state.gov. When the United States announced its independence from Great Britain in 1776, Central Europe was a fragmented area of roughly 300 sovereign independent states, kingdoms, uh, principalities, free cities, etc. Just just to orient you quickly, this was in 1776, the Gemara was closed around 500 of the common era. So you're talking about uh, 1,500 years before that, or sorry, 1,300 years before that, uh, the Gemara is telling you the state of Germany uh, in the future. Right, and then the number 300 is is fascinating how how uh, similar that is to the, uh, well, exactly what the Gemara said. Now, this is a quote from HistoryHit.com. Before 1871, Germany had always been a motley collection of states sharing little more than a common language. Customs, systems of rule, and even religion varied widely across these states, of which there had been around 300 on the eve of the French Revolution. The prospect of unifying them was as distant and disparaged as the United States of Europe is today. Until Bismarck. Now, Bismarck uh, managed to unify them a little bit, but as we know... the uni- What is Bismarck? Bismarck was uh, the, uh, some... I think he was a king in Germany, one of the early, uh, in, I think, 1871, around. Now, not to get too technical with the uh, with the history, but in World War One, obviously, Germany tried to unite with Italy. Um, Italy ended up remaining neutral, and Germany lost the war. So, but, again, a, another fulfillment of the Gemara's, so to speak, prophecy that if Italy is not with Germany, that's going to muzzle Germany's advance. Right. But World War Two, the a similar thing happened, but there was a focus on the destruction of the Jews, which is one of the uh, purposes of a Amalek. In other words, Germany and Italy decided to actually get together. And interestingly, Hitler had advocated an alliance between Germany and Italy since the 1920s. This was a, a prime focus of Hitler was, let's get Italy on our side. Um, and shortly after being appointed chancellor, Hitler actually sent a personal message to Mussolini declaring admiration and homage and declaring his anticipation of the prospects of a German-Italian friendship and alliance. Now, interestingly, even though Germany allied with um, a, a few different uh, neighboring countries and uh, or just countries in Europe, uh, Italy, he never broke that treaty with Italy. Now, again, bringing reminiscent of the Gemara, which says that if Italy is against Germany, their path to conquest will be halted. If Germany is with Italy, then there is nothing that's putting the muzzle on the descendants of Asav. So again, so we have this tradition from the Gra that Germany is a Malik. We have this Gemara telling us that Germany, the descendant of of Asav, will the only reason they're not going out to destroy the world is because they have not formed this alliance with Rome. We have in World War II Germany and Hitler specifically the the leader of the Amalekim, going out, trying to forge this alliance with Italy as hard as he can, and going out to, basically, go out and destroy the world. Now, the question is, the Gemara seems to imply that if they actually ended up getting together, they would end up, if they removed this muzzle of the infighting, they would end up destroying the world. So, how did we end up winning World War II? So, to this, we turn to a fascinating passage in Megillus Esther. Everybody knows the Ten Sons of Haman. Parshandasa, Dalphi, Naspasa, Pyrosa, Dalia, Ridasa, Parmashta, Risai, Aridai, and Vaizasa all got hanged from the gallows during the first day of fighting. 
Afterwards, the king goes to Esther and says, you've killed so many of my people. What else can I do from you? The Gemara actually says that Amalek smacked him at that point when he first started saying you've killed so many people because he was upset. Amalek smacked him and changed him to say, now what else can I do for you? Whatever you desire, I'll do whatever you want. Now Esther, of course, was like, hey, you free for lunch tomorrow? <laughs> Party round three. No, but she could have asked for anything. How about let's rebuild that base of Mikdash that we've been talking about, right? This time he didn't say up till half the kingdom, he said. You can get whatever you want. She could have asked for anything. But what did she ask for? Vataymar Esther, if it's good for the king, give us also tomorrow to do what we did today. And the ten sons of Haman we will hang from the gallows. Now, this is very weird for a number of reasons. First of all, why are you hanging the sons of Haman on the eights if you just did that yesterday? They were already hanged. I understand you want to fight again because there are still enemies to fight, but why are you asking to hang the ten sons of Haman again? You can't kill a man who's already dead, let alone ten men. Additionally, why is she asking? She has a request. She can ask for anything in the world. Why does she ask for another day of fighting? So now, there's a tradition brought down in Esther Rabbah. That any time in the Megillah, the word Melech, king, is mentioned with Without Achish- any qualifiers. Right. So when it's mentioned with Achishverosh, it's talking about Hamelech Achishverosh. When it just says Hamelech, it's referring to Hashem. So now this Pasuk is saying, A time Esther in Melech type, if it's good for the king, who's the king? It's Hashem. You should also give tomorrow to the Jews. Now, Macher could mean tomorrow, the next day. As we know in the Purim story, she did, they did fight the next day and kill more uh, Persians. But it can also be a reference to, in the future, you can also give to the Jews a day to fight, an extra day that we can win this war, and the ten sons of Haman we will hang. Now, let's fast forward a lot of years to November 20th, 1945. That was the beginning of the Nuremberg Trials, a international military tribunal that was held by the Allies after their victory in World War II against the surviving political and military leadership of Nazi Germany. It was punishment time. Now, this again started on November 20th, 1945. The purpose of this trial was not just to convict those who were guilty, but it was also to assemble irrefutable evidence of Nazi crimes, establish individual responsibility, show the crime of aggression in international law, and offer a history lesson to the defeated Germans. That if you try doing this and starting up against the world, this is the end. There is no German elitism. You will lose every time. So this trial was really the destruction of that German elitism, that German method or, or, or mode of conquest where they felt they had a right to the, to the countries of the rest of the world. And it's important to point out, this was not to punish a specific, you did this, so you're going to get this crime. It was more of a kangaroo court meant to show the world that we do not hold of this uh, ideology. We do not hold of Nazism. We do not hold of the Amaleki way of life. So while they were trying to execute Nazi leadership, what they were really trying to execute was Nazi idealism. Now, there was uh, 24 Germans on trial at this, at this, uh, the Nuremberg trials, and 12 Nazis were sentenced to be hanged which was very interesting because hanging was not the normal way that a court would punish those who did war crimes. The normal way was either the electric chair or shooting, but they got hanged, which should be uh, should be starting some alarm bells in your head. Hangs, Nazis, Amalek, Haman, 
Maybe the connection could get a little bit stronger. But it's 12, not 10. There were 12 Nazis and 10 sons of Haman. Well, let me stop you there. Goring, Herman Goring, Herman Boring, committed suicide. Didn't allow us to see the show. And Martin Borman, which I'm pretty sure was Jewish, um, <laughs> is still missing, right? So they never found him. I don't know where he went, but they never found him. So in the end, 10 Nazis got hanged. 10 Nazis, 10 sons of Haman, one committed suicide. Now, fascinatingly, the on October 15th, which was the day, be, this would be 1946, so this is the day before the scheduled executions. This is Goring, he was sitting in his prison cell, and he wrote a note, his suicide note. And he wrote, to the Ally Control Council, I would have no objection to being shot. If you want to kill me by shooting me, no problem. However, I will not facilitate execution of Germans of Reich Marshal by hanging. For the sake of Germany, I cannot permit this. Do you understand? He refused. He committed suicide rather than be hanged. He didn't mind getting shot. He didn't mind dying. But he would not be hanged. Why? Maybe a little part of him didn't want to be part of that destruction of Amalek. Now, it gets even crazier. So, the Pasuk that talks about the hanging of the ten sons of Haman has four funny letters. There's a small tuff of Parshandasa. There's a small shin from Parmashta. There's a big vav from the S, and then there's a small Zion from Vayuzasa. So, Suf, Shin, Big Vav, Zion. Now, you know the funny letters game, right? They're equaling years. So, if you take the small letters, the Tuf, Shin, Zion, that each equals the gematria of 707. The Big Vav, that's your millennium. It's bigger. The millennium, the 6th millennium, the 707th year of the 6th millennium, would be the year 5707, according to the calendar of Boratius and 1946 in the secular calendar. 1946 was the year of the conclusion of the Nuremberg Trials, the year in which the 10 Nazis were hung. Now, if that's not crazy enough, each of the names of the 10 sons of Haman have a V-S between them. V-S Parshandasa, V-S Dalfain, V-S Aspasa, V-S Parasa, right? Could have just said V-S Parshandasa, V-Dalfain, V-Aspasa, why the extra S's? Now, we know that S is always coming to include something. Every time the Torah says the word S, it's coming to include something, right? Like we have Kavit S Avicha Vesimech, and it comes to include your Rebbe. Now, what is this S between each one coming to include? Quite possibly, it's coming to include 10 additional sons of Hamans who will be hanged in the years represented by these letters. Now, again, as we mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, we know, or we have a tradition not just from here, that the letters that are changed in size in the Megillah are representing a significant year in the uh, Jewish history, where we had Tach, Tafches, representing the year uh, 1648, and now we have these letters again representing these years of 1946, specifically relating to the 10 Nazis being hanged. Now, to take this one step further, here is a quote from the newspaper of a reporter who was on scene at the Nuremberg Trials at the conclusion as one of the Nazis was being hanged. Now, this Nazi, Streicher, what was his first name again? Julius. Oh, Julius Streicher. Julius Streicher. Julius Streicher. Now, this guy was a very creepy guy, a huge anti-Semite. He was actually the only one of the Nazis on trial who had not participated in any of the killings or plotting of of any of the Jews. He was just in charge of the uh, despicable newspaper, uh, Der Stromler, uh, the stormtrooper, basically, uh, where he had tremendously anti-Semitic attacks against the Jews all throughout, and he was really the, the what changed the culture 
uh, against the Jews. It was now, like the uh, BBC of um, Nazi <laughs> Germany. Well, yeah. Uh, so here's a quote from the, the newspaper. This is a reporter on scene. As the guards stopped him at the bottom of the steps for identification formality, he uttered his piercing scream. Heil Hitler! The shriek sent a shiver down my back. As its echo died away, an American colonel... Colonel. Colonel? I think it's obviously Colonel. Colonel. Standing by Colonel the... Colonel Mustard? Yeah, okay. Standing by the steps. Said sharply. Ask the man his name. In response to the interpreter's query, Streicher shouted, You know my name well. The interpreter repeated his request, and the condemned man yelled, Julius Streicher. Julius Streicher. <laughs> as he reached the platform, Streicher cried out, Now it goes to God. He was pushed the last two steps to the mortal spot beneath the hangman's rope. The rope was being held back against a wooden rail by the hangman. Streicher was swung suddenly to face the witnesses and glared at them. Suddenly, he screamed. Purimfest, 1946. Now, you might be thinking this is crazy. Why would Streicher scream Purimfest when he's about to die? So, besides for the obvious connections we're building with the Megillah, we have to tell you a little bit of the history of Streicher's connection to the Jewish people and the Yomtov of Perm. So the day after the Kristallnacht attack on November 10th, 1938, Streicher gave a speech in which he referenced Perm. He said, just as the Jews butchered 75,000 Persians in one night when they defend themselves from being killed, the same fate would have befallen the German people had the Jews succeeded in inciting a war against Germany. The Jews would have instituted a new Perm festival in Germany. So Streicher really thought the Jews were the bad guys in the Perm story and really thought they were the aggressors against Persia and they would also be the aggressors against Germany. Now, who would think that outside of Team Haman? In May of 1924, Streicher authored and published an article on Perm again titled Das Purimfest, the Festival of Perm. Uh, we can das Purimfest. That's terrible. <laughs> He dressed up as a Nazi. <laughs> we can surmise that in order to publish his venomous attack, Streicher must have had some knowledge about the Perm narrative. He must have done a lot of research on Perm. Now, as an aside, Streicher was recorded as being complaining throughout the whole process in Nuremberg that all the judges judging him were Jewish, which seems kind of fair now that I think about it. <laughs> now, one last interesting point. So the Pusik said that she, uh, Esther asked the king, can we hang a Saseris B'nai Haman Yithu al Ha'etz on Ha'etz, the tree or the wood? Now, the Ibn Ezra asks, why does it say Ha'etz? Why doesn't it just say al Ha'etz? Let's hang them on, on wood. Why does it say Ha'etz? And Ibn Ezra gives an answer. But according to this, we can give maybe another Nakuda which the Megillah is hinting to. The name of the captain, the officer, who was the hangman at the Nuremberg trial, his last name was Woods, John C. Woods. It's possible that the Megillah was hinting that the one who would hang the Nazis, the sons of Haman, was Ha'etz, the wood, the wood that's going to come about in 1946. Now, another interesting thing is that this, the day of the hanging, was actually Hoshan Rabbah. Hoshan Rabbah, right? Hoshan Rabbah, um, well, obviously, you know, has its main... Uh, main point of its Yom Tov, Hashan is known, Alpi Kabbalah, that it's the day of the sealing of the Din of Yom Kippur. So to hear the hanging of Haman, the sealing of Haman's fate, which happened, you know, 1,200 years later, happened on Hashan Now, one last cute point, and this is really for, for Purim, some little bit of Purim, Tyra. So we know that Haman's 10 sons got hanged, and we know that his daughter, 
committed suicide after dumping garbage on Haman's head. So she committed suicide. We have 10 Nazis getting hung, and we have one Nazi, Goring, committing suicide, representing Haman's daughter. Now, why would Goring, who was a man, represent Haman's daughter? Uh, I'm even Yavin about the history of some of the leadership in Nazis, specifically Goring. And as we see, Esther had the 10 sons of Haman rehung, rehanged, but we never have Haman being rehanged. And so to here, Hitler, his body was never found. So just to recap, we have the Ben Yoyada explaining that Haman and his Gzeira, his decree to destroy Ben Yisrael, was never fully eradicated. And every generation when we celebrate Purim, we eradicate a little bit more of Haman's initial decree. We have from numerous Achreinim that the big letters in the Megillah, the Ches and the Tuf, are representing a year of a disaster for Jewish history. Tuf Ches, which represented the year 1648, and the riots. We have a tradition from the Gra that Germany represents a Malik. Now, based on this, we can have a deep understanding into the Gemara and Megillah, which explains that while Yaakov requested that Hashem never unmuzzle the son of Esav, which is Ger- Germany, and the Gemara tells us that the muzzle on Germany was that they couldn't ally with Italy, that they were always fighting with Italy. We have in World War II, finally they ally, they break Yaakov's request to not have them ally, and we have Esther making a special request from the Melech, not meaning Melech HaChashverosh, but Melech meaning Hashem, that please give the Jews one more day, one more day in the future, Lamachar, the future where they can fight against Amalek and destroy Amalek. And in that day, 10 Amalekim, or 10 Bnei Haman, will be hanged yet again. The letters in this Pasuk specifically reference the exact year that the 10 sons of Haman, the 10 Amalek and the 10 Nazis get hanged. The Tuf, the Shin, and the Zion. 707, 5707, representing 1946 when they were hanged. We have one of the Nazis yelling out before his death, Purimfest, 1946, making the pretty implicit connection explicit. We have the second-in-command of the Nazis begging and committing suicide just in order to avoid the hanging, being willing to die in any way but this hanging. We have the man doing the hanging. His name was Wood, representing the Pasuk of al Haetz. And finally, the date of this hanging was Hashan the day of the sealing of the fate of the Din of Yom Kippur. Now, I think it's very apropos to the story of Purim because the Megillus Esther, uh, one of the ideas behind the name Megillus Esther is Giloi Hest- Esther, Hester, to reveal that which is hidden. Because we know there is no Hashem's name in the Megillah. There is no Nisim in the Megillah. The whole story is natural. Yet through the writing of the Megillah, through the piecing together the different parts of the narrative, we see Hashem's hand so clearly. And so too with this. A person could skip by and just, the Holocaust happened and okay, it was against the Jews. But every detail about it, if one looks carefully, one can see patterns of Jewish history, patterns of Hashem's hand. And really, we try to bring it to the forefront so a person can get a deeper appreciation of the relationship between a Malik and Klaus Yisrael and a deeper appreciation of how Hashem's hand is with us throughout history. And hopefully with the hanging of these 10 Nazis in 1946, we have eradicated the Amalekite ideology from the course of Jewish history. And with it, we will prepare for the final coming of Mashiach. It should become speedily in our days. I'm Avi Cohen. I'm Mati Cohen. And this is Jewish Thought Flow. Mm-hmm.